pray with me. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I pray that this profession with our lips is not an empty one, but that we do love you. We love you because you're perfectly lovable, and we love you for the great demonstration of your love that you gave to us in Christ Jesus. So I pray that even now our love for you would be reflected in our great desire to hear your word. So I pray that your word would be powerful within us, that it would be your word of great love to us, and that we would receive it and embrace it, and it would rest deep within our souls to feed us all the days of our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Turn, please, to 1 Peter and uh, chapter 1. 1 Peter and chapter 1. I want to read the first nine verses, really. I'll only concentrate on a couple, but I want to read this whole section. We'll still have another week before we finish these verses. But 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to concentrate our attention this morning just on verses 6 and 7. Let me read them again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that's an amazing sentence. It isn't so amazing to think just of the realism of the passage. I mean, anybody realistic understands that we go through trials, that life isn't easy, that there are difficulties in the context of life. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. You just have to be a mature person. Only a naive, immature, inexperienced person would say that life's a breeze, that there are really no problems in life. I mean, there simply are, and we experience them. And everyone, and everyone does. What's amazing here is the fact that Peter is so upbeat about this, that Peter is so able to say that there are various trials that cause grief and suffering in the course of a person's life, but yet still in that same regard, there's still rejoicing, there's still joy in the midst of all of that. So people who say that there is no difficulty, there is no suffering in the Christian life, that the Christian life is an easy one and doesn't really understand what they're talking about. They're simply wrong. There are difficult times and life is difficult, even for Christians. Of course, 
There's something in us that longs for a better day. There's something in us that longs for a time when that won't be true. That is, when there will be no trials, there will be no suffering, there will be no grief, and all of that. And, and Peter plays off of that longing because it's true, and it will ultimately be true, for that is our hope. In fact, that's his first ground of rejoicing. We talked about that last Sunday. A day will come when there will be no more trials or no more grief, no more suffering, and all of that because he tells us that we've received the mercy of God. And this great mercy of God is he looked upon us and saw us in our misery and saw us in the misery of our sin and came to us personally and loved us and saved us. Because he did that, we know therefore we have been born again into a living hope, not a dead hope, but a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that is, his resurrection sealed the deal. His resurrection said that God the Father had received his sacrifice and all that he came to do, he accomplished, that is, to save his people from their sins. He did it. And thus, those for whom he died will be saved. They will be the recipients of the mercy of God. They will be born again into this great living hope. When he died, we died. When he rose, we rose in him. This living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That is, there is something out there, there is something waiting for us that's kept in heaven for us, this great inheritance. And, and it can't go away, it's kept there. It's kept there, and it can't perish. Nothing will happen to it. It won't become defiled, that is, not holy. It won't become anything less than what it already is, which is perfect for us. It won't fade away. It's kept in heaven for us, and this is good, and this is right. And then he describes, as Peter does, as those people who are being guarded by God's power through faith. It is God's power is guarding us, keeping us, so that he guarantees by his own guarding that we will get to this inheritance. But he won't do it apart from us. He'll do it through us, that is, through our faith. And he says that this will all be for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, so even though there are trials now, and even though there are difficulties now, we do know and long for a day when it won't be like that. And we should long for that day. In fact, that's part of what informs our hope and our joy. In fact, it was very, how do I say this, encouraging to me this week on the number of notes and calls and so forth that I received from people that said, yes, that's true. Not that I need you to confirm the Word of God, but it helps. People say, yes, that's true. I, I went through this, or I went through that, or I'm in the process of this. And what enabled, what sustained me in the midst of that was the fact that I know that all of that in heaven is secure for me, and God is taking me there. And that sustained me. But there's another piece to this. See, our hope not only rests on what is to come, but Peter's saying that our hope, thus our rejoicing, but our hope is in what is actually happening now in the context of these various trials because they're purposeful trials. Uh, Peter speaks very generally here. He says, he says you have been grieved by various, uh, by various trials. Now, in some versions, the little word manifold trials is used. I like that, manifold. If you took a colored piece of paper, a piece of paper that was multicolored, had a lot of different colors on it, and you began to fold it, and you folded it up and folded it up and folded it up, and then begin to unfold it, just one fold at a time. Each new fold would have a different hue, a different color, a different group of colors, and it would be just a little different than the one before it. And he's saying, that's what life is like. 
that are manifold trials, all kinds of trials. They look a little bit different than the other, and they seem to just keep coming, but these trials in the course of life that come, they're they're many, and, and, and they're various. Now, we know the people to whom Peter is writing are experiencing particular trials, like persecution, like they're suffering for righteousness' sake. But, but here, Peter is, is being much more general than that. He's saying various kinds of trials, those kinds of difficulties, the kinds of grief that you bear, the kinds of suffering that comes in the course of life. And that can come in a variety of ways because we live in a fallen, sinful world. Obviously, disease. It's one of those trials, one of those great difficulties, one of the things that brings suffering in the context of our life. Illness, uh, death of someone we love, the pending death of ourselves or someone we love can weigh heavy upon us and bring various kinds of grief and suffering to us because of that. Loneliness that we feel, insecurities that we feel that, that bring grief and suffering to us. We wonder, does anybody out there really like us? Or will things really go well for me? Will I be able to really accomplish that? and do that, those kinds of insecurities that come and, and, and hit us in the course of our lives. The hurts and pains that we really feel when a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend or an employee or an employer or a neighbor betrays us. That's real pain. And that's real suffering. And those kinds of things really come and they try, if you will, us. They test us. But not only that, there's just simply the, the, the grief that comes, the suffering that comes as we do battle in the context of our own sinfulness and the, and the sin that, that seems to befall us. We have that passage in Galatians 5 where Paul speaks about the flesh warring against the spirit or our sinful natures warring against the spirit of God uh, who is in us. And, and we have that battle that seems to be going on and that brings a tremendous amount of grief. You know how you feel when you sin the pain that that brings to your own heart, and the pain that it may well bring to others when others sin against you, the pain that that brings to you, you, you know what that is, and it's a difficult thing. And the great danger as we go through these trials is that this heaviness can be so great upon us that we could lapse into what one preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, referred to as a spiritual depression. That as we get into this state where we think that God isn't with us, that in some sense God has abandoned us. And here we're fighting this battle, we're living this life in a sense without him. Uh, we read it very honestly as we work our way through the psalm. Psalm 22 it begins with a, an expression we know from the lips of Jesus because he experienced it to the uttermost. But, but David experienced it as well in the context of his own life that birthed that psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This great feeling of being alone. Or in Psalm 42, where the psalmist looks at his own soul and says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? There's this sense of a loss of hope. There's this sense of a helplessness. There's a sense of, of, of God having, in some sense, abandoned us. But in every instance, when the psalmist writes that, those words, if you move through the psalm, you find a time coming when he recognizes who God is and that God hasn't abandoned him. God really is with him. And then the hope springs. And when that hope springs, there's rejoicing and worship. And that's what Peter here is about. He's saying, listen, it's easy to lapse into this spiritual depression if God has abandoned you, but he hasn't. He really, really hasn't. Because, you see, God is the one who is with you, for he is sovereign over every trial 
and every difficulty that comes your way. Notice what Peter says here. Verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. He says, the trials that come to believers are only those trials that are necessary. Necessary for the purpose of God to be fulfilled in the context of our lives. Only those that are, that are necessary. There are no unnecessary trials, no unnecessary difficulties, no unnecessary suffering, no unnecessary events or struggles that bring suffering and grief to you that are unnecessary. Every single one comes because they're necessary to what God is accomplishing in the context of your life. So this is how Peter begins. This is how he sets this all up. He says, listen, there's still hope in the midst of the trouble. There's still hope in the midst of the trial because, because this is necessary in some very significant sense for you and given God's plan for you. And the reason that Peter can say that is because he knows, as we all know, that God is, in fact, sovereign over all things. In 17th century language, which is still the language I speak, as you know, uh, in, this, in 17th century language, it simply goes like this, that God ordains whatever comes to pass. That God ordains, because he's God, because nothing can thwart him, because nothing can go around him, that God ordains whatever or everything that comes to pass. Now, we have to be very careful when we make a statement like that because just making that statement, we get in way over our heads. Because now we're beginning to talk about things that are true about God that are not true about us, that we don't have experience with in the sense that we can do that or we understand that. We don't ordain whatever comes to pass. But God does. He's the one who, who appoints everything that comes to pass. And one of the difficulties in our thinking about that, we say that God ordains everything that comes to pass. We say, well, what about sin? I mean, sin happens. Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. We sin in the context of our daily lives. Do you think that God caused that? And we say, well, no, 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 no. We don't want to say that God is the author of sin. But the way that we put it is that he ordained it. He appointed it to happen because it will work ultimately for his purposes. And you say, I don't understand that. And I say, me neither. But how else would you say it? Other than he ordained it, because how else could anything occur without God's ordination of it, appointment of it? But yet we know God isn't the author of evil. But we do know that that didn't happen randomly. That after Adam sinned, God didn't go, how'd that happen? Well, he knew that it was part of his purpose. Mysteriously, though, we say, but still part of his purpose. And one of the ways that we understand this whole notion about God's will is to divide it into at least two parts. So let me do that just quickly. I've done this before, so many of you know this, those of you with memories. But we can divide God's will into these two categories. One, his will of decree and the other, his will of precept, his decretive will and his preceptive will, right? Now, his decretive will is that which he decrees to come to pass. That's everything. You can always know God's decretive will by waiting a minute and looking back. And thus, in that decretive sense, everything that takes place 
is in the will of God. Now, the danger there for us is, well, how could that be? Because there's good things and bad things that took place. You say, yes, that's true. But in the sense of God's decretive will, nothing can happen unless he ordains it. And so he ordains all things to come to pass. We can always know that after the fact, but we can't know it before the fact. We'd like to. People are praying, oh God, tell me your will. Should I buy this car or that car? What are we asking? Tell me what's going to happen in the future to these cars. Is this one going to break down or is this one not going to break down? That's what we really want to find out. But what we really should be praying and what God will tell us is what his precepts are. That is what pleases him. You see, when we're praying for this car, oh God, tell me what your will is, he'll say things like, don't be greedy. Don't be prideful. Don't overextend yourself and put yourself in a situation of debt that you can't get out of. Don't tell me that. Tell me what's going to happen to these cars. You see, we want to know what's going to happen. But he says, no, no, no. What I'll reveal to you by my precepts, my will, are my commands, what pleases me, to love each other, to be patient, to be kind, and so forth and so on. Those are all God's precepts. And so that's the will of God he reveals to us. And, and at any one moment in time, you see, for instance, take the crucifixion of Jesus. We see both of these things uh, taking place uh, at once. We see his precepts being violated and his decree coming to pass. For instance, in Acts in chapter 2, uh, Peter talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's decree of will. Before the foundations of the world, God decreed that Jesus would come. And everything was put into place, and that took place. That was the will of God in his decreative sense. But then the end of that verse is, well, I'll read the whole thing again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. At that point, God's precepts were violated. Yet his decree was fulfilled. All right? God's decree to will is precepts. Those two things. And what Peter is saying is that God is the one who determines what's necessary for each one of our lives. And God is the one who decrees that various trials come to various ones. Now you say, that doesn't really solve the problem for me, because you see, the, the, the difficulty here is to think that God would decree that which would hurt me, or that would bring suffering to me, that would, would, would bring grief to me. And I say, I understand that. But he isn't doing it with the intent of hurting us. He's actually doing it with the intent of ultimately helping us, ultimately blessing us, because he has a bigger purpose in mind. This is simply the means of that. You see, but, 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 but does God have to go to these kinds of lengths? Because this isn't just play acting. These aren't training exercises. Uh, this isn't just a, a little seminar that we, a little you know, role play that we're doing. This is real pain that happens in people's lives. When someone gets cancer, and you say, well, that's ordained by God. It's a trial for them to go through for which he has a purpose. You see, I understand that, but that cancer is real, and it brings real pain. 
like someone's lonely. You say, well, this is a trial that God has ordained for them to go through. You say, I understand that, but that's real loneliness, and that's real pain that God is putting that person through. I understand that. When a person is, is, is fighting a particular sin and, and on some occasions overcoming it and on some occasions not, you see, that's real pain. That's real grief that that person is suffering in the midst of that. How can you say that God has ordained that and appointed that to take place? I say, I understand what you're saying. But still, Peter is saying that God is sovereign over all these trials. And he only ordains them which are necessary in the context of our lives because he has a bigger purpose in the midst of this for us to go through. And he's saying, hang on to that because in a minute that will bring you comfort. Hang on to that. Because when you find out the purpose for which that trial has come, even though it brings suffering to you, you look back and be willing to suffer it for the benefit that it brings, what God has in mind, the purpose that he has in mind, the purpose he has in mind for it. And you may say, well, isn't there any other way God could do this? Could, could he do this without the suffering? Could he do this without the grief? And I simply said, it's a hypothetical question that I can't answer because the truth of the matter, he does it this way. And he tells us he's going to do it this way, so he does it this way. He, he says this is necessary in the context of our lives. We can see it throughout 1 Peter, for instance. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, he writes, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. That is, suffering for doing good is God's will in certain situations, both the doing good and the suffering than for doing evil. In verse 19 of chapter 4, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He's saying this is the will of God. That God has decreed your suffering. But Peter's saying trust him because he'll only decree suffering that is necessary for you. And God's the one who gets to determine what is necessary. But it appears as if this is the way God works in the context of our lives. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, you find the, 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 the suffering that took place in the saints of old. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, you read the, the hardship and the difficulty and the discipline that comes for us to us. For instance, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, and you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we re respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father, spirits, the father of spirits and live? But they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Wow. There is this sense of hardship, of difficulty coming into our lives, as is necessary so that we can share in his holiness. And you say, well, why do, why do I have to go through this particular difficulty and you don't? Because the truth of the matter is, as we look around, we see some who've gone through great difficulty, as we would understand it, and others that seem to just sort of be skating by. I don't know that either. I'm not the one who determines what's necessary at any moment in time or for any one life. And you should be happy about that. And you don't get to determine what's necessary, even in the context of your own life. 
because God is sovereign over it. He's the one who orders our steps. We don't. Truth of the matter is, if you would make a list of what you think is necessary for you to share in His holiness, I bet that list would look different than God's list. See? I believe brownies are directly correlated with holiness. Right? Vacations. I think it's the direct correlation. I don't think that's the way God looks at it, you see. We make light, but, but again, I don't want to to the degree that this is real. These are re- this is real suffering that God has ordained in the context of our lives. But Peter says, you can bear it, even with joy, because you know it's God who believes it to be necessary. In fact, it was the way of life for our Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That is, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now that wasn't that he was imperfect before, but what he was perfected in was being our high priest, being our representative, and the way that he became that was through suffering. So God ordained it for his son. He ordains it for us. And Peter says, this is a way of life. This is realism. This is true. But you can still rejoice in it. Don't get under the heaviness of it and lead to a spiritual depression thinking that God isn't with you because he is. In fact, he's the one ordaining all of this. Embrace him and embrace this. Because, Peter says, there's this great purpose that's coming around the bend. Notice verse 7. Peter says, Let me read the whole deal again. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that, here's the purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what's at issue here, what's at stake here, what's important to God here is your faith and my faith. That's what's important to God. It isn't your success in all these other realms that we might think is successful in terms of how much money we make and prestige and all that kind of thing. What God's interested in is the genuineness, the sincerity, the purity of our faith, our belief in Him. Now, when we become Christians, we may feel like our faith is very strong, but the truth is, it's filled with impurities. And so Peter says, well, well, here's how those impurities are removed. It's through these difficulties. He says, it's just like gold, he says, which is the most valuable thing he can think of on the earth. He says, just like gold. If you take gold and it's not perfectly pure, how do you remove the impurities? You fire it. Now, that's great because it makes pure gold, and that's valuable in some sense. Then he goes, but that's going to be destroyed. What's really important in life is your faith. And so God's plan for you is for you to have faith that's tested, hyphen, genuine. That it's it's proven to be genuine. And it's proven to be that way because it stood various tests. And so he brings these tests to us as necessary 
in the context of life. This is real. This is realistic. If you're a young person, get ready. People of my age don't look this way because we've lived on brownies. Well, I do a little. You can find it. Those of us who are older and experiencing some of these in more detail, perhaps, or in different vintage, we need to have hope in the midst of this because there's something here that we must realize is of great importance to God, and it's our faith. What he wants it to be is shiny and pure. And so the only way to get it that way is to take us through trials that are necessary, that he deems necessary, that come our way, however they may be. We can't plot the course for another. We can't plot the course for ourselves. We shouldn't sit envious of, of one another or anything like that. This is just simply the lot in life in which we have. And, and God is doing the same work in each one of us to purify our faith. And so Peter says, grab a hold of that because that's the purpose all of this is going to be. Because, you see, we're being guarded, we learned in verse 5, we're being guarded by God's power through faith. So if we're going to make it, if we're going to persevere to the end, we must have this genuine, pure faith. And so all these impurities are getting burned out in the context and the course of our lives. That's what's going on in your life. Want to know what's life all about? It's that. It's faith being tested so that it can be proven genuine. And the way that it's tested is through trial. The way the trials test us is to burn out everything that's not pure. Now see, the goal of your life, the hope of our life, is to glorify God by having a faith that's genuine, a faith that's pure. And so we go through this. And so when these things happen to us, when difficulties come to us, however they may be, whether it's a struggle of sin, or whether it's a struggle of disease, or whether it's a struggle with others, or whether it's difficulty in a variety of different contexts, it's that. Let me give you some illustrations. Abraham, for instance. Remember, Abraham was called by God as an old man and told that he was going to be the, um, the founder of many nations and he would have many descendants of numbering as many as this, the sand and the seashore and the stars in the sky. And he looked at himself and he was old. He looked at his wife and she was old and barren, the scripture says. But that was the promise of God. But he did not act in faith. He acted in another way to try to get that first child through the servant girl of his wife. And it was proven wrong. God said, no, that's not the way I'm going to do it. He told Abraham the way he was going to do it, and Abraham went, better work. Thus, we read in Romans, in chapter 4, this concerning Abraham. Romans 4, verse 17. Now, it is no longer, uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at one more page. Uh, verse 16. Huh. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. That's a wonderful expression. Because, you see, he looked at the situation and said with the eyes of a human being, this is utterly hopeless. But he knew the word of God in which he trusted, and thus he hoped in God's word against hope that he should become the father of many nations that he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith 
when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That, you see, his faith in Abraham was tested. And you remember the great test of Abraham's faith. The great test of Abraham's faith when God told him to take this son, his only son Isaac, the son of the promise, and sacrifice him. How could that be? But he believed God, trusting that God could even raise him from the dead because God had promised that Isaac would be the son of promise. Of course, no one was safer on that mountain that day than little Isaac. But Abraham tested God thus. James was able to say it was this test, trial, that proved Abraham's faith genuine. During the offering time, I mentioned the situation as the Israelites were leaving the wilderness and God took them into a place where there was no food. Now, you may think you have great faith until you run out of food. And they knew very deliberately that God was leading them. They knew that. God had taken them right to this place where there was no food. And the scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, that he did that to test and to see what was in their hearts, to see if they would obey him, to see if they would follow him, and to see that they would trust him. Because God had said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Would you believe what you're seeing, or you believe what I've said, God says? Just testing your faith. And you see, at that moment in time, there's a lot of impurities that sort of get burned away. Because I thought I trusted. Deuteronomy chapter 13, there's an interesting little passage in the first couple of verses there. The scripture says that if there is a prophet who comes to you, and if the prophet who comes to you predicts something and it comes true, that's, that's the test. Because he goes on to say, but then says, let us serve other gods. Will you follow him? Because I've given you that as a test. To see if you just simply want what's going to come true, what simply can be predicted, what this prophet can tell you is going to happen, or are you going to trust me and follow me? It's a test. Came a time in the life of Israel as well after they went into the land of promise and Joshua had died and, and they had cast out as many of the foreign nations or the nations of those lands as they possibly could and, and they didn't cast them all out as God had commanded them. God says, okay, I'm not going to get rid of these other nations. I'm going to leave them there to test you. So he left enemies right in the midst of their land, right in the midst of their place to test them, to try them, to bring battle against them. Not unlike he's done with Satan. He could eliminate Satan from the scene. In fact, there is a day when he will eliminate Satan from the scene. He could take away any sinful inclinations that we have at all, and there will be a day when he'll take that away. But he hasn't yet. He's left all of that behind to test us. So that we'll battle against it, to see what's really in our hearts. Will we? And every time those battles come and those tests come, you see, a little bit more of the impurities get burned off. You go, ah! That hurts. It does. But it's good. That's the purpose. And then ultimately, Peter says this. And this is where we're headed. He says, all right. <clears throat> so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious 
than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, listen. Here's the crescendo. This is what all of this is building to. You want to know what's important in the context of your life to God? It's your faith. He has a vested interest in your faith. He's not just going to simply let it go. He's going to be after you and after you in all kinds of way, every necessary way, no matter what it is, to purify, to test, to prove genuine your faith. And it's going to be in the context very often of, of trials which cause grief and suffering. And he says all of that is so that your faith is purified so that the day will come when you meet him and you will stand there, he says, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Now, praise and glory and honor to whom? Well, most certainly, to Christ himself, because he's the one who did it. He's the one who gave us the faith. It's in him whom the faith is. He's the one that works sovereignly in the course of our lives to purify our faith. So it's certainly to be to his praise. As we stand before him, we will praise him for all he has done to bring us there. But Peter has something else in mind here by the way he structured his sentence. There's a sense in which the praise and glory and honor is to us. Isn't that just like God? To give us faith, to do everything necessary to purify it, to sustain us in the midst of that, to bring us into his various presence, into his presence, and and, and see this shining faith. And then for God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. He says, that, says Peter, is the thing to look forward to. When the great day comes, the genuineness of your faith will be made manifest. There will be praise and honor and glory. Your little faith, the faith you think is so little, will stand out as something tremendous. It has stood the test and it is going to minister unto praise and honor and glory. Whose honor and praise and glory? First of all, his. He will stand at that great day and look with a sense of satisfaction at Christian people, those whom he called. They have passed through the great tribulation, but they have stood the test. They have not faltered. He will look at them, and he will be proud of them. They will be to his glory and praise and honor at the great day that is coming but it will also be to our honor and glory and praise, yours and mine. We shall share in that glory and we shall hear him praising us, saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He will clothe us with his own glory and we shall spend our eternity enjoying it with him. And the greater and the more genuine our faith, the greater will be our glory. So Peter says, if that's valuable to you, if that's gold to you, then you'll rejoice even in the midst of these various difficult, grief-suffering trials. Because you know that they're necessary for you to have purified faith that is necessary for you to stand before Christ and receive his great blessing. 
Hebrews 11 verse 1 gives us a definition of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 2 says, and this is what the ancients were commended for, living by faith. Now we know that this is all true because it's the work of Christ. And we know God will bring it to pass through Christ because the scripture says to us, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's the logic of Scripture. The logic of Scripture is we can bank on every promise of God, even this great promise to know that he is sovereign over every difficulty that comes to us so that our, te- our faith can be purified, so that it can be presented, we can be presented to God and receive his commendation of well done. We can know that will come to pass because he didn't spare his son, but he gave him up for us all. If he did that, will he not also, along with Christ himself, give us every good thing? And the answer to that is, of course he will. Of course he'll do that. Unless you see our assurance, our faith has increased, and we think about our Lord Jesus Christ on the day that he was betrayed, the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And then in the same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle says, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today what we're proclaiming in all of this is that because of the work of Christ and because it is finished, and we trust that every good thing which he promised will come to us, most especially genuine faith. And we see the very love of Christ And we know that it's by him that comes, as necessary, every trial. And we know then that every trial will take the impurities of faith away and purify our faith, that we may be presented pure and spotless. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray now that you'd set aside this bread and this juice in such a way and use it for the purpose of restoring, building, purifying our faith. Lord Jesus, meet us here and we can feed upon you that you will fill our very souls so that whatever comes our way we can know came from you and we can embrace it and even rejoice knowing that it will purify, test, prove genuine our faith. 
This we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. That is, you understand that in order to know him, you must be a recipient of his mercy towards you. And his mercy comes to us in Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. And thus you believe and depend upon Christ alone, as he is offered to us in the gospel. And it's your heart's desire, therefore, then, to live as becomes a follower of Christ. Now, a follower of Christ is one, of course, amidst all these other things who understands that God is sovereign and everything comes from him. And that we embrace it so that our faith can be made pure. So let me invite these two sections down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you're going back and eating it, think of this. Yes. Everything that comes to me comes through Christ that my faith may be tested genuine.